From beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts, this is Returns on Well-Being, the podcast that brings you the latest and best thinking from today's business and healthcare leaders. We share strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines and address two of their biggest concerns, the cost of healthcare coverage and the engagement of their workforce. To guide us on this quest, here's our host, Jim Purcell. Thank you for joining us. Today, we have our guest as our guest, Al Lewis. Uh, Mr. Lewis is perhaps most well-known, might I use the word notorious, critic of what I'll call today's traditional workplace wellness programs and what he's fond of calling the pry, poke, and prod model of corpus wellness. He's caused great controversy and indeed angst in the wellness industry, but more on that later. Al, welcome to Returns on Wellbeing. Well, thank you very much for having me. Tell us a bit about your background. I know you have undergraduate and law degrees from Harvard and taught economics there. Take us on a quick trajectory of your career up to, say, the turn of the century. Okay, so uh, after law school, I went to work for Bain & Company and stayed there for uh, many years. Mm -hmm. And after that, I started uh, running healthcare companies, including one people who've been around long enough might have heard of called Peer Review Analysis. Right. We were the first external review agency, and uh, we're actually a NASDAQ company. Now, as uh, as NASDAQ companies go, we were a fairly pathetic one. Uh, how pathetic, you might ask? Well, every time I got to work and I'd see a letter from NASDAQ on the desk, I, I would always assume they were writing to tell me we were being delisted. Um, and yet we survived, uh, did a merger in 1995 that paid off very well for shareholders, but uh, I was synergized out of my job, and that's when I got into disease management. I got into it so early that uh, I get credited on the Internet with having invented it, though I have absolutely no memory of having done that. In fact, the first sentence that I ever uttered with the words disease management in it were, quote-unquote, what's disease management? Um, however, I caught on quickly, and uh, when I realized there was an, an industry there, uh, a market there. I started the Disease Management Purchasing Consortium, which endures to this very day. And with the Disease Management Purchasing Consortium became the, the largest, by far the largest uh, buying agent for uh, disease management programs in the country for about a decade. Uh, and then uh, well, during that decade, around the year 1999, started the Disease Management Association of America, which at one point was uh, called a quote-unquote powerful disease management lobby although I never would consider myself to be powerful at anything. Uh, I lost a lot of money, but you have to do the right thing, and sometimes it costs money um, in the short term to do that. All right. So something happened around 2007, and so to make you change your mind with regard to uh, workplace wellness, uh, what was it? Well, it, it was specifically disease management, although the same thing was true for workplace wellness, but... Uh, I actually did something that literally nobody had ever done up to that time, which is actually run the numbers, uh, not just not just, you know, doing to, oh, you know, the participants beat the non-participants and all their costs went down. The non-participants went up. None of that nonsense. I actually did an economic model the same way I used to teach the kids at Harvard to do where you you simplify the assumptions and uh, you say, well, let's let's say we had two asthmatics and two years and let's say that one of them had a claim in one year and not in the other and vice versa. And you work out the arithmetic 
And it actually turned out that, uh, that I was overstating the savings. There was a big statistical and rather obvious statistical flaw in my reasoning that I mm -hmm. never would have come up with, except somebody challenged my numbers at one point right before that. Not that I was showing too much savings, but that I was showing too little savings. And I knew this guy was wrong, but in the process of disproving him, I disproved myself. Uh, Jim, in a nutshell, I used to say there was no regression to the mean because we, we captured everybody with the disease. And therefore, even though we caught all the high people going down, they would go down on their own. We also caught all the low claims people going up. So that would offset the big mistake. And that would, in fact, be true if you had perfect information as to who had a disease. If you knew who had a disease even before they knew who had it, that would eliminate all the regression to the mean. But in the real world, there are tons of people out there who have a disease who the health plan or the employer or the wellness vendor doesn't know about, so they don't count in the baseline. But guess what? They can also have heart attacks. Um, and if you're not counting their heart attacks, of course you're savings because you're only counting the heart attacks of people you already knew about. So uh, you, you could have been faced with several options at that point, one of which was you could stay in uh, the workplace wellness uh, profession and, and try to change it, or you could, as you say, go rogue in wellness. Uh, you chose the latter, apparently. Why was that? And take us through what happened. Well, after I figured out that um, we were all making up our numbers, in fact, there's actually a blog post. Somebody, when I was in a conference, somebody, there was a blogger there, and it's got a great title, and you can still look it up. It says, Founding father of disease management astonishingly declares, my kid is ugly. <laughs> so um, after that, I figured, well, you know, the disease management numbers aren't adding up. And Healthway stock crashed within about two weeks of uh, when I uh, announced at this conference that the numbers didn't up. Healthway's lost about 20% of their stock price. They were the only publicly traded disease management company. They ended up losing about 90% before they started recovering a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, uh, but the, the, what I thought was, well, you know, uh, disease management isn't going to work. I had a great run at it, but I can't keep pitching it if I know it doesn't work, but maybe I should do much more with wellness because everybody says wellness works. But then I started looking at the wellness numbers and it turned out that they were more blatantly fabricated even than the disease management numbers. Um, although at the time I have to say that, that, neither the disease management vendors nor the wellness vendors actually knew they were fabricating the figures any more than I knew I was fabricating mine because no one had discovered this statistical fallacy yet. Well, you know, I discovered the fallacy. I wrote a, uh, I wrote a book. It was a very respectful book. It didn't call out anybody by name called why nobody believes in numbers. It still sells today. It's probably sold about, you know, 7,000 copies, which by the standards of these things is, is a good number though. Um, I hesitate to divide my royalties by the number of hours it took me to write the book because I'm not sure I might be violating the minimum wage laws there. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so I wrote this book and I thought because I was pointing out all these fallacies and everything that the people in the wellness industry would embrace me. They'd say, oh, thank you for pointing these stuff, these things out. We, you know, now we get it. We should have done it, you know, right the first time we didn't know, da, da, da. Just the opposite happened. I got blacklisted from just about every speaking place, uh, you know, places I couldn't publish. Um, and uh, that's when I decided, look, 
you know, if they're not going to let me play in their sandbox, uh, well, that's fine. But then they can't, I, I can't be responsible for what happens to that sandbox. Mm-hmm. And that's when I went rogue, started naming names, uh, came up with the website. They said what.net, where I call vendors out by name uh, when they fabricate their savings. And by the way, now they know they're fabricating their savings. And I've invited them. I, I, you know, I don't need to repeat names here, but they're on my website. Um, I've pointed out that they know they're fabricating savings. They're welcome to sue me. I give them my address, even my summer address, in case they decide to sue me in the middle of summer, and my attorney's address. Haven't heard anything from them. Um, mm-hmm. So, but um, but what would happen is I would I then started clawing my way back, not in the more traditional settings like. You know, the Health Enhancement Research Organization, they would never want to have anything to do with me. But other places like the Care Continuum Alliance, you know, would welcome me back. Uh, and now I get a fair number of speaking engagements. But along the way, people would say to me, OK, Al, I get it. I'm convinced this stuff doesn't work. What should we do instead? And Jim, I never had a good instead. And I thought, you know, if I could come up with an instead, I could do really well in this in this business. I could start a, a vendor that would have a wellness alternative, da, da, da. but I never really knew what it was. You know, I'm a trivia buff. I've written a best-selling trivia game, and I was on Jeopardy. Maybe I could combine this health education with trivia and create a company that way. And that's how Quizify came to be. It, uh, it educates people on every aspect of healthcare, from how to access the system, to how not to access the system, to how to improve your own health, to everyday hazards that you might not be aware of. Uh, For instance, uh, Colgate uh, Total contains a a chemical that's registered at the ETA website as a pesticide. Uh, You know, some people want to know that. A lot of people don't know that. It's called triclosan. In the immortal words of Casey Stengel, you could look it up. So that would be an everyday hazard that we teach. Uh, In terms of accessing the healthcare system, something like that CAT scan piece of trivia I gave you, I might have gone ahead with that CAT scan if I hadn't known how much radiation was in it. So just giving people a trivia question where, you know, the answer is that a CAT scan has 100 to 1,000 times as much radiation as an x-ray might discourage them from going out and demanding unnecessary CAT scans. You are the founder and president of the Disease Management Purchasing Consortium International, which is described as an outcomes measurement evaluator in the field of disease management and wellness for health plans. Uh, what is that? Well, that used to be the vehicle through which I did all the purchasing right. of these uh, programs on behalf of health plans, hence the name. But these days, um, I get called upon much more to do uh, outcomes evaluation, uh, which turns out not to be that hard. But the uh, the wellness and disease management industry like to obfuscate it. Uh, it's really quite easy. I mean, if you if you have a uh, well, let's use the example of a cardiac disease management program. Uh, if you're doing a cardiac disease management program, newsflash the number of heart attacks in your organization should fall uh, versus a benchmark and assuming there's not a you know big uh, change in your demographics. So all you do is you basically count the number of heart attacks year over year over year over year, see if it changes based on having put a program in place. Um, to give you an example, and this one is in the public sector so I can use it, uh, the uh, Ohio Public uh, Employee um, uh, Retirement System uh, wanted to do a disease management program in diabetes because, you know, it's a, it's a retirement system. They had a lot of diabetics. So we counted the number of diabetes admissions in the few years before the program. 
Then they put this program in place. It was a massive program. Uh, included free co-pays and all sorts of stuff. No change in the diabetes rate. And then we thought, well, maybe it would have gone up if we hadn't had the program, although we didn't think that was the case because I do this for plenty of organizations, health plans, employers. So we took out the program and still no change in the diabetic admission rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we could hire you uh, to take a look at disease management. If I, let, let's, let's say... Let's say I'm an employer of 10,000 employees, self-insured, and I have a wellness program, and I want somebody to come in and take a look at it to see whether the outcomes that are being alleged by the vendor are true. I would hire you to come in and do that? Uh, Yes, I I could do that. I still do that for my legacy accounts and anybody who asks. The difference is because I have a pretty darn full-time job with Quizify, I don't really run out and market it, but I still get asked quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the answer is yes, it's actually not that hard and not that expensive. You just have to have your claims data available. And I have this little algorithm, this spreadsheet that I give you where you fill in a few numbers and I can then tell you what has happened to your rates of these, what we call wellness sensitive medical events, things like uh, heart attacks and, and, and diabetes events over the period in which you've had a program in place and if indeed they've declined versus benchmark, I do this for a number of organizations, so I've got a benchmark. Even if they've declined, have they declined by enough to pay for the program? Sure. That's positive ROI. Now, I, yeah. I've, I've read enough of what you've written to know that you know of virtually no wellness program that has returned a positive ROI, right? That's correct. And in fact, you have a bet out That's there. That's correct. Tell us about it. Okay. So there is a $3 million reward. I've upped it from one to two to $3 million on my website for anybody who can show that wellness saves money. In fact, they don't even have to show that wellness saves money. I actually have to show that wellness does not save money. There's a panel of five judges. They pick one, I pick one, and the rules are very clearly laid out on theysaidwhat.net. And then uh, two are picked objectively by who are the most uh, widely followed health economists in the country at the point at which the uh, award is claimed. So then you've got four judges, they pick the fifth. And then there are rules about how you submit data, I submit data, we both submit you know, um, according to these, these rules, and then the judges review, and then we all get together and state our cases, and the judge's decision is final. I've, uh, you put up a small down payment, I. I show that I have the funds, you make a larger down payment, I escrow the money, and then you, you uh, f- complete your, your application fee, and then we do the actual, uh, content, the actual uh, uh, debate in front of the judges. Mm-hmm. And uh, has anybody taken you up on it? Of course not. Uh, you know, fundamentally, Jim, these folks know that they're making this stuff up. I mean, they've... I've been told that by, you know, many people who are actually part of making it up, uh, you know, off the record. Um, but they, they, they doctor their, I mean, I've got screenshots. I've got, I mean, I, I've got, I'm hoping just, you know, my problem, people sometimes say to me, aren't you concerned about being sued? I tell them I'm much more concerned about not being sued. I would love it if one of these people stepped forward and said that, hey, you know, he called me a liar, I'm suing. Um, good for him, you know, I would love that because I've got data up, down, and sideways on these folks. The difference between them and me 
is if if I could no, I don't because I don't like to name call. I'd rather I'd rather just show rather mm-hmm. than tell. I could call many people liars, and there's not a thing they could do about it. One of them calls me a liar, and I'll be in court the next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've 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 uh, read in an interview you said you know the old joke about the way you can tell a lawyer is lying is that his lips move. Well, the way you can tell a wellness vendor is lying about saving money is that they say they are saving money. Um, yes. And uh, you've certainly put that out, and you've not been sued to date for slander or libel, have you? Uh, unfortunately, no. And by the way, I, I don't want to just, I don't want to, like, paint all wellness vendors with the same brush. There are, there are a, a number of wellness vendors that don't claim to save money that do work you know, we I make a draw a very strong distinction between wellness done for employees and wellness done to employees. So there are a number of wellness vendors like uh, I mean, I'm saying something nice about them so I can say names like a Limeade or or a Red Brick or a, mm-hmm. uh, you know it starts with me or or uh, Sonic Boom uh, that uh, that don't harass employees that don't you know force them to to binge before the first weigh-in so they can show that they've lost weight by the second way and those vendors are perfectly okay it's these it's these outcomes based wellness vendors where they they harass people into you know into to cheating so that they can um you know not be penalized that it shouldn't even be legal i mean it's harmful it's unethical it's basically a fraud i don't even know why it's still legal yep one goes into this thinking well goodness if you get people to exercise more and eat healthier food and quit smoking, uh, isn't that going to ultimately make them healthier and reduce health care costs? So what, what issue do you have with that? Well, it's funny that you should put that, because I use almost those exact same words in this major expose that I wrote in the, law, in the leading law medicine journal, um, which is the Case Western Reserve Law Medicine Journal called Health Matrix. It essentially starts out just about exactly what you said, that on its surface, what could possibly be wrong with a program where employers save money by making employees healthier, by helping them to lose weight and eat better? Um, I didn't mention quit smoking in the first line, but the same thing. It seems so plausible. And Jim, you weren't the only one. I mean, when I started in this field, I, I was you know, adamant that this stuff worked. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have a problem with it in theory. It's, but as Yogi Berra once said, and, and allegedly said, uh, in theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, they're different. So it just, it's not just that it just hasn't worked. You can't, I mean, people, it's extremely difficult to lose weight and keep, and keep it off. In fact, I think there was a statistic recently published in a huge study uh, in England that showed that the chances of uh, keeping your weight off after you've lost a certain amount were less than 5%. Mm-hmm. And smoking, you know, similar, you know, well under 5% of people who, who, who quit for X period of time can stay, can stay quitted. Uh, and people don't change their diet, whether, you know, a few people do, most don't. Uh, so it just hasn't worked. And, I, you know, I wouldn't even mind. I mean, like if it only helped people a little I'd be great with that. You know, I'd say, fine. Okay. Well, you know, you try to get a hundred people to quit smoking. A few of them quit. Great. It's, it's all the, the two things, the fabricating of the outcomes to try to, to, to somehow twist these tiny successes into, into savings claims, number one. And number two, 
the, the, there aren't successes. The, if, when, if you actually, when you look at the data, you find that um, oftentimes the opposite happens, that people actually get sicker as a result of being in these programs. And the best example is the 2016 so-called best program of the year, uh, WellSteps, according to their own published data, which they obfuscated, so you would need a calculator to actually add it up. But according to their own published data, the employees under their management got considerably sicker during the time they were managing them. Could you tell us what it is about traditional workplace wellness, besides the lies about the results, that you find objectionable? Uh, I think it's the, the fact that you're being incredibly intrusive which wouldn't bother me at all if, in fact, it got results, but the intrusiveness does not create any results. If anything, it, it makes people worse. So my problem is not with wellness in theory, as Yogi Berra would say. It's wellness in practice. Mm -hmm. It's what you have to do to people to try to get them to, to do something, and then the something never happens. Yep. You and I have talked enough to know that uh, at least directionally where I'm heading in writing my book is that that without creating a workplace culture of well-being, which is much broader than just the physical, uh, you know, most of this isn't going to work, that you, you, can't, you can't make or force people to get healthier. They themselves have to come to a fundamental personal decision that they connect uh, healthier lifestyles with, with some personal goals that they have. Um, uh, do you view that at least as a better start? Uh, yes, and, and a much better start. And, and I would actually add an asterisk to it, which is that uh, at, at Quizify, we don't pretend that we can sort of push people along that, that you know, to, to push people to make that decision that you described, because they have to make it internally, uh, intrinsically, as they say. But what we do do is if somebody has made the decision, for instance, I want to eat less sugar, I want to eat healthier, uh, well, we show them how to do that because mm -hmm. most people are not aware of just the ridiculous number of places that sugar is hidden in their diet, that the, that the food companies have, I believe, a number of 64 different kinds of sugar with, with obscure names that they can use, that the food companies divide up the sugars so the sugar doesn't appear as the first ingredient, uh, all sorts of stuff like that. So once someone has come to that decision on their own, as you say, you and I both agree, you do it differently than I do it, but it's a right shoe and left shoe. I mean, that's not like mm -hmm. you would do one or the other. You and I both agree that we need to help them along that journey once they've decided to make it in order to make them successful. And the difference yeah. between us and wellness companies is that wellness companies think you can kind of, as I, there's a line in my book, uh, Surviving Workplace Wellness, it says uh, that wellness vendors are, are going to make employees happy whether they like it or not. You know, mm -hmm. so yep. Yep. You, you can't force people into this, but you, you, you give them an open roadway and hope that they get on that roadway. Once they're on that roadway, it's our job to keep the snow off it, you know, and keep it paved and everything. Right. So, so your model, and consistent even with Quizify, would be you educate or otherwise help employees get to a place where perhaps some of them make a decision to do something. And once they make that decision, you make it as easy as possible for them to do it. Uh, yes, actually, there's there's two complementary things in there, Jim. Uh, one is 
once they make a decision to to be healthier, we remove roadblocks in terms of helping them avoid these things we know they want to avoid. But then there's another half, which is, and for behavior change, 10% is knowing what to do and 90% is actually doing it. Okay, mm -hmm. so most smokers know they're supposed to quit, but doing it is really hard. On the other hand, much of the other stuff that we do, like that CAT scan example, is exactly the op or the Colgate and the pesticide is exactly the opposite, where 90% of the value is bringing this to somebody's attention, and then only 10% of the effort is required to change behavior. I mean, how hard is it to swap out your Colgate for your Crest? Or to right. say to a doctor, uh, that this CAT scan, how much radiation is in this CAT scan? And we are always shocked at that particular example of how quickly doctors will uh, say, well, we can do something different. If you just ask how much radiation is in the CAT scan, you don't have to argue with them, you don't have to debate them, you don't have to bring them statistics. Just ask a few questions. And these CAT scans, I, I, I think if, if every, everyone who has ever um, suggested a CAT scan or was, willing, was about to suggest a CAT scan knew how much radiation was in them, the number of CAT scans would fall by a third and it would still be among the highest rate in the whole world. You've seen some of the material published by Gallup and Limeade on improving employee engagement and productivity through well-being. What do you think of that? Oh, you know, I mean, Limeade is a, is a fine organization and Gallup, you know, also a you know, good polling organization. Uh, I've seen the stuff and I, I believe it's possible. What I like about what, what Limeade is doing is they're not making claims that they can't uh, back up. You know, they're not saying we're going to reduce your healthcare spending by X. You know, they're basically saying we will make the workplace better and then Gallup, Gallup will measure it. And I'm quite confident that if, if, if people do implement the kind of things that Limeade talks about, it will become a better workplace. Yep. And that gets you to the engagement, productivity, reducing turnover and absenteeism, which are pretty darn good ROIs. Indeed they are. Uh, and the beauty of them is that they can be measured. Uh, and I would add a couple other things too. I would add uh, tardiness and, uh, and even uh, I, I, not so much a defect rate because defect rates are dependent on a lot of things, but defect rate uh, late in the day versus defect rate early in the day. Because if your employees are truly, you know, they're alert, they're getting enough sleep, they're not being stressed, yep. they should be able to maintain their, their level of quality throughout the day. Yep. So the beauty of all these things, Jim, is they can be measured objectively uh, using, as I sometimes say, ingredients that, that you already have in your kitchen. Okay. As a company, you're already measuring absenteeism, you're already measuring turnover. Um, so, you know, you, you change one variable, one big variable, which is the well, uh, well-being, um, you should be able to see a you know, a, uh, an inflection in those rates. I, I know that even the RAND study, which uh, showed that for what it studied, that the traditional so-called workplace wellness programs had no positive ROI, disease management did. And we know that uh, the, the cost of health care coverage is, is overwhelmingly driven by uh, a small percentage of the insured population and most likely by chronic illness. So isn't there a place for disease management in an attempt to reduce overall health care coverage for an employer? 
Uh, there are actually three really good questions or thoughts in there. I think I want to would like to address them one at a time. First, the Rand study. Uh, I was actually one of the two peer reviewers on that study, oh. and um, and I I wrote that this disease management thing is almost certainly wrong. But because this is about wellness, um, all you know, I would love it if they did. You know, these this remember I talked about that event rate analysis with the heart attacks and everything. Right, right. I'd say, look, look, either to get this published, you either have to do that analysis or else tell us that you can't get the data to do that analysis. And uh, the author uh, wrote that he couldn't get the data. It's, it's in the article. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm, I'm quite confident that that a, a great deal of that um, savings from disease management was uh, alleged savings was simply regression to the mean and that uh, that we let it go because that what that was not the subject of the article. And, and I think the. What, what he wrote about, which is wellness, was very important, and I didn't want to hold it up for this disease management thing. So, mm -hmm. so and that was a huge ROI. It was like three to one. But so, so I generally tell people basically what you say, Jim, that, that it's important to do, to have this disease management available for people who need it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, the, the emphasis is really on people who need it yeah, and are want it. Want it. The old model, which, by the way, uh, guilty as charged, I espoused, I sold, I brokered, I advocated everything, was, you know, you try to reach out to as many people as possible to find the people who have these diseases and can benefit from it. And that turns out to be a fantastically ill-advised idea. However, if, in fact, um, you make yourselves available to people who have these conditions and want to call you, and they know because it's, it's on their EOB, it's on their website, they're getting you know a, a flyer about of some kind. They know they can call you and get assistance. Well, you know more power to you. There will be an ROI there. Now, mm -hmm. the only problem with it is that you, there will be an ROI in the sense that the, you will save more than you spend for sure. But the the percentage of people who are actually on their own volition going to call you. Of the, versus the number of people having a given condition, probably about one or two or three percent. Right. It would be very helpful for that one or two or three percent. And then the third thing in that uh, the, the question you asked was the overwhelming amount of uh, cost being due to chronic disease. Um, th there's there's a lot of nuances around that that uh, thing that the CDC came up with that are important to note. Uh, number one, that is certainly true in the over 65 population. However, what we're talking about here is the under 65 population. The working, the working people. The right. working, yes, not even the disabled, but just the working class. Or not the working class, but the working population. So, uh, and number two, uh, when you look at the definition that the CDC used of disease management, it includes a ton of stuff that I'm sorry, of disease, of chronic disease. It includes a ton of stuff that just is not addressed by uh, your classic wellness disease management programs, arthritis, uh, depression, um, uh, musculoskeletal. There are vendors that do this stuff, but that's not what, what people think of when they think of chronic disease. And then number three, if you actually read that CDC thing, uh, it actually says that the spending on people with chronic disease is 75 and then later 86%, mm -hmm. not spending on chronic disease. So if somebody with asthma has a baby, they would count that as part of that 75% or then later 86%. And let's talk about those two figures because for years, 
they said 75% of spending is due to chronic disease. And then one day they switched it to 86%. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how could that happen? Well, it, it makes no sense because it, if you look at it the other way around, what they're saying is that overnight the spending on acute care conditions went from 25% to 14%. Well, that's hugely newsworthy, you know, but mm-hmm. nobody noticed. All they did was hire a different consulting firm. They hired uh, apt associates that had no background in this kind of thing, and they came up with a number that was 11 points higher. And there's a lobby inside the CDC that, that tries to make chronic disease a much bigger deal than the regular epidemiology work that they do on, on uh, you know, the valuable work that they do. Uh, things like keeping Ebola out of the United States and, you know, uh, getting rid of smallpo- or, uh, smallpox worldwide, getting malaria out of the United States, which was their first big thing that they ever accomplished. The people who do the chronic disease, I think they're pretty jealous of the fact that these other folks do such a great job generally and are in the limelight so much. So they try to inflate their own importance. Um, there's a lot going on down there in Atlanta we don't know about. Let's drop back. We talked a little bit about... Um... Uh, smoking and obesity, and um, what if uh, a workplace wellness or well-being program, what I'd call it, uh, stopped focusing on smoking and obesity and started focusing on stress and depression? Uh, how would that sit with you? Uh, you know, honestly, that pr- I, I thought you were about to say start uh, focusing on movement, activity, and exercise. And then I would have said, I'm a thousand percent with you. Uh, the thing about stress is that stress is uh, an intrinsic thing in a workplace and stress reduction programs are kind of mandated on top of that. And the analogy that I always give and this story, I swear I remember it from when I was a kid, but I can't find it in the Internet anywhere. So it may be apocryphal, but it's still a good story. Uh, India, uh, back in the days when they were a socialist economy, would occasionally have famines and uh, there was one time there was this big famine, mid-60s, and there was a senator, I think it was from North Carolina or something, who, who advocated send, shipping them tobacco to ease the stress of starvation. Okay, so that's essentially the equivalent of layering on a stress management program uh, when, in fact, the issue is the amount of stress in the workplace in the first place. And, and there is actually a conference coming up in November called Fusion 2.0, which is addressing exactly this, which is how to de-stress, fundamentally de-stress your workplace to a more workable level. Um, depression is just very, very hard to uh, get your hands around, even as somebody's physician, let alone as a vendor or a workplace. Uh, maybe people don't know they're depressed. Maybe they don't want to admit they're depressed. Uh, you know, maybe they're on the meds and they're feeling fine. Maybe the meds are, are not working for them. But whatever it is, the right people to do that are not, you know, not a vendor and not the not the employer. Maybe the EAP, but it's not a wellness vendor. That that finishes our uh, discussion with with Al Lewis. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing. To subscribe to this podcast series, visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com, where you'll find resources to help organizational leaders achieve tangible returns on well-being.